This is Wildcat Dojo Conversations. Welcome to another episode. It's just the three of us today. Wah, wah, wah. That was Landon. <laughs> and this is a funny beginning to us reading you the story that we promised to read you from the book, The Karate Dojo by Peter Urban. And the story we're going to read is The Shaolin Monastery. Thank you. I knew that. <laughs> I really like the story as one of the first stories that we read because it has so many exciting parts to it. It does. Maybe you'll give, giggle like we are today. Okay, guys, here goes. Enjoy! At some time during the 6th century, the Buddhist monk Buddhiharma, who is generally acknowledged to be the original propagator of the martial arts concept, traveled from India to China for two purposes, to found a Buddhist monastery and to unite the various Buddhist and Taoist schools of thought which had sprung up in China. The undertaking of such a journey even today with guides, motorized transport, pack animals, firearms, and other paraphernalia considered necessary for an exploratory expedition is an enormous and extremely dangerous task requiring months of planning and logistics. The difficulties Buddhaharma faced must have seemed insurmountable to an ordinary man. Consider some of them. The Himalayan mountains, the highest, coldest, and most forbidding terrain in the world. A country teeming with wild animals and even wilder people who robbed and killed travelers as a matter of course. The distance itself, a matter of some 2,500 miles as the crow flies, but in reality, probably three times that distance. No roads, and in many places, not so much as a footpath. No maps or guides, and even Buddhaharma's religion, which forbade him to carry weapons. Alone, on foot, and unarmed, Buddhaharma successfully completed his journey probably the first man to cross the Himalayan mountains. When he arrived at Honan province, he immediately founded the Shaolin Monastery. Even to this day, a veil of secrecy surrounds the mysteries of its creation and structure. At first, there was nothing except Buddhaharma. Doubtless, he alone built the first shelter out of whatever materials he could find, using them simply, usefully, beautifully. Gradually, the number of disciples increased until there was enough manpower to begin creating the building. This was no ordinary building task, for the standards Buddhaharma imposed on his followers were unprecedented. His demands were so rigorous that the disciples found themselves prostrate from exhaustion time and time again. Drawing upon the knowledge and experience he had gained from his fabled journey across the mountains, Buddhaharma developed a physical, mental, and spiritual discipline which later came to be known as Zen Buddhism. He knew that, if properly developed, the human body could be far more diversified and effective an instrument than any weapon, and that if this development were coordinated with certain yoga breathing exercises and proper diet, his disciples would attain perfect physical health and stamina. The lawlessness of the times would no longer be a threat to the monks, for their excellent physical condition would render them deadly fighters. Synthesizing his knowledge of the human body's potential for development with his knowledge of animal fighting techniques, Buddhaharma created a unique system of physical conditioning, weaponless fighting, and mental concentration. His breathing and relaxation techniques came from his study of animals, especially the big cats. The spontaneous explosion of life force, known as chi, developed from close observation of many animals. 
He invented many defense and striking techniques by watching insects, reptiles, bears, and dogs. The deceptive calm of the sea, which can become a tidal wave, the light touch of a summer's breeze, which can become a typhoon or a cyclone, the immovability and imperviousness to pain of the rocks, all were useful to Budhaharma. Nothing was neglected. Through the crystallization of his knowledge, which eventually came to be the Shaolin system, the monks survived and flourished. Although they were religious men, wishing to harm no one and carrying no weapons, they would kill their attackers without a qualm, for they believed that such people were inhuman humans and were to be dealt with on their own terms. These monks developed into such formidable fighters that in time they became immune to all danger. Their daily exercise, meditation, and diet enabled them to live to ages that would seem impossible today. Hey, before we push on to Sensei Jackie's part, can I just say real quick that the mention of the animals and the movements, and especially the elements, is kind of inspiring to think that that material has been passed down generation after generation for all these years, and then finally, from Master Collegian to us. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Okay, here we go. With nothing more than their powerful bodies, the skill and dexterity learned from their technique of fighting movement and their concentrated willpower, the monks gradually created one of the most mysteriously beautiful buildings known to mankind. There was a solemn symbolism associated with the entrances to the monastery. Although there were three sets of doors, front, side, and rear, Everyone, no matter how high his attainments, had to enter through the rear gate. This was unalterable procedure. If a monk could not comply with the disciplines and standards of monastic life, he left through the rear gate, never to return. Those monks who had intrinsic ability to succeed, but who chose to leave the monastic life, were permitted the honorable use of the side gate. The front gate was used so seldom that the monks measured the passage of time by the rare occurrences of its use. It was reserved exclusively for those who had successfully completed the examination for a certified master of North Shaolin fighting system. Because of the finality of success or failure, few undertook the trial of the examination. For people far removed from the disciplinary demands of this kind of life, It is difficult to imagine the amount of time and the intense effort required in training. To be deemed worthy of undergoing this examination, one would train for at least 20 years. The test was an experience unique unto itself. As far as we know today, the candidate received neither instructions nor hints as to what he would encounter. One was led through the monastery cellars to a labyrinth built far beneath. Once he was inside, the doors would be closed and sealed, preventing retreat. The candidate knew that there was only one way out. His fate would be either triumph or death. The labyrinth, which was divided into two chambers, was cold and damp. The walls oozed moisture and were slimy to the touch. Rats, spiders, and reptiles brushed against, clung to, and scurried around the candidate. There was almost total darkness. There were pits that had to be instinctively avoided, for one false step would be injurious, if not fatal. Arrows and spears shot out from concealed hiding places in the walls. Stones and axes fell without warning and had to be dodged or caught. Eerie shadows danced in the shallow light which fell on the skeletons of former unfortunate candidates, who now served as ghastly inspirations. 
The labyrinth narrowed so much in places that it seemed impossible to proceed, being less than twelve inches wide. But the candidate had been taught that nothing was impossible. If he could prevent fear from trapping him, he would be able to find a way out. After much time had passed, the exhausted yet alert candidate saw a light in the distance. Instinctively realizing that he was approaching the end of his ordeal, he moved on, not allowing himself to fix his gaze upon the light. He knew that its hypnotic effect would distract his senses from alertness to possible dangers that lay in wait between him and the distant chamber. He inched his way closer. At last he approached the room, golden with the light of candles. His eyes quickly adjusted to the brilliance and focused on objects which were hanging on the walls. Weapons. The choice ranged from spears, knives, and hatchets to clubs, chains, and bows and arrows of all sizes and shapes. Some served a single purpose. Others were more flexible in their use. Why were they needed? What was behind the next door? Some lettering on the wall instructed, choose only one. The candidate knew that he dared not wait. The longer the wait, the more difficult the decision. He could not risk confusion. Relying upon his instinct and reasoning, he noticed that one instrument was different from the others. Yes, the golden shovel was undoubtedly the proper choice. Quickly, he seized it from the wall and entered the next room. The door closed. In the Stygian darkness, the candidate sensed that the room was alive with crawling things. He realized immediately what they must be and why he had instinctively chosen the shovel. The crawling things were scorpions, thousands of them covering the walls, ceiling, and floor, crawling over one another. In this split second, the scorpions had already dropped to his clothing. He violently shook them off and shoveled them away, beginning to clear a path across the room. He smashed them with the back of the shovel, buried them in the sand, hit them in midair. It was a continual circular moment of smash, shovel, swing, shovel, smash. He was completely surrounded, but did not stop to judge his damage or evaluate the odds against his success. Just before reaching the far door, he realized the difficulty of opening it. His decision was instantaneous. With a constant sweeping circular movement of the shovel held in one hand, he pulled back the door with the other and entered the next chamber. Again, the door closed behind him, leaving him in total darkness. Landon's up next to take the story home. And we know you want to get back to it. We know you're on a cliffhanger. But before we do... Can I just say, the scorpions, the slime... Ugh, it was gross. Gross. <laughs> We're all looking at each other like... Hecky. <laughs> yeah, it was gross. It was gross. And then the, the other thing that came up was where in the story, when he had to go through the little 12-inch thing, right? Yes. And, and they uh, referenced that nothing is impossible, which... In our Goju style today, that is one of our ten virtues, that nothing is impossible. Okay, Landon, take us home. All right. He sensed that he was in an enormous, empty, stone-walled chamber. Quickly, his strong, sensitive fingers glided over the walls, seeking the sight indication of another door. So cunningly were the walls constructed that he could find nothing, not even the door he had just passed through. What could this mean? A flash of intuitive understanding answered his question. This was to be the final test. Somehow, he must find the way out, using every resource at his command. His breathing deepened, slowed, 
almost stopped. Suddenly, he knew. His heightened sensitivity had felt the tiniest possible movement of air. Less than that needed to move a wisp of smoke. High, high up on one wall were two small openings, roughly a shoulder length apart, large enough to admit the passage of a man's hand and arms. This must be the key. Deliberately, he measured off the length of the floor from one wall to the opposite. Standing there, he realized that all he possessed in the way of chi must be released now, and that once this attainment was reached, he must never let go. With the suddenness of a bullet, he shot across the floor, and with an explosive screen that seemed to shatter the very stone themselves, he leaped, scrambled, clawed his way to the top of the wall, found the holes, and thrust his arms in as far as his shoulders. He found himself hugging a metal object similar to an enormous vase. At the same time, he became aware of the odor of burning flesh, and he realized that the inside of his forearms were resting on white hot metal. With the last of his strength, concentration, and will, he forced himself to hold on. As he did so, he felt the wall on which he was transfixed began to turn, as though on a pivot. Slowly, this vast door revolved on its axis until, with the shock of recognition, the candidate found himself deposited not only outside the labyrinth but outside the monastery as well. The test was over. He had left by the front gate. He was a certified master of the Shaolin Monastery, and on his forearms was his diploma: two dragons deeply branded into the flesh. What a good story! It had a little bit of everything, didn't it? It did. I mean, it was in, it was exciting. It was intense. It was historical. It really had a lot of different things in it. It had lots of squishy things. Yes. <laughs> Don't make me go back there. And for non-professional readers, we did okay. Yes. So for one thing, if you liked that, if you liked us reading a story, tell us, and we'll do it again. If you didn't, tell us, and we'll stay away from that kind of thing. Telling someone else's story. So give us some feedback on that, right, Landon? Always. I just want to say about the diplomas on the arms. So 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 interesting. I mean, you think about it after his long journey in what it was essentially a deadly situation. When, when he shoveled. stuck his arms through the the stone walls and the he hugged wall. the vase, and that was what gave him the thing. But it does make sense to me why now I see some martial artists will get tattoos on the inside of their forearms. Plus, I have seen that, but quite in, a bit actually. Interestingly, this was a, like being branded. No, it was literally being branded, <laughs> and so that you can't remove the brands like you today the way you can remove a tattoo. I'm just glad that we get ours and we can hang them on the wall. <laughs> ours are the kids, yes, our diplomas, yes, <laughs> right. Very true. I wonder also, how long do you think it took? Yeah, I did think about that. I do wonder that. I would say 24 hours. Like, just just in my mind, it was a days-long thing. For some reason, that's what stuck in my mind. What do you guys think? You think it was a week or three hours? I don't think that it was uh, as long as 24 hours because of the uh, immediacy of getting through. That's what I agree. With all sorts of things coming at you. Like, with the scorpions, you're not going to sit in there for... Very long. Three days just attacking you. That's that's true. But they did have a lot of chambers. 
That's right. So I don't know how long it took. I wonder. If you know, let us know. Or if you have an opinion. That's true. All right. So how do they let us know? Let's each say one. You go first, Landon. Um, at Dojo Conversations at AOL.com. At Facebook, Wildcat Dojo, or on the webpage, also called Wildcat Dojo. Also, if you have any other good ideas for shows, if you have any other critiques on how we could do better, please be a communicator. We love when you get back to us. We love it. Of course, you should go to your podcast source, subscribe to us, and give us a good review. Right, guys? Absolutely. Helps us a lot. Also, did you know I have two books on Amazon? The last I checked, they were both available. The first one is called Teaching Children, Karate, and More. And the second one is called Self-Defense, A Common Sense Approach. And the spelling of my last name is D as in David, A-R, B as in boy, R-O. Michelle Darbro. So check that out for us. I think that's it for today. We'll say bye. Bye, everybody. It was fun. Bye. See you next time.